0: You may be seated. I encourage you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to be together looking at verses 1 through 5. We've reached the last chapter of Galatians. We remember that Paul was dealing with a congregation that had fallen into serious error but yet, uh, he also had uh, other things to tell them. It may seem at first glance, uh, therefore, as they are looking at uh, Galatians 6, just to give you a warning, that it's oddly disconnected in some ways from that which has gone before. Paul, you will remember, has been uh, focused in the preceding chapters on teaching uh, immensely important doctrines like justification by faith alone and in Christ alone. He's also been confronting the dangers of legalism and antinomianism, and he's even touched upon their own need for sanctification, how if they are truly, if they have been truly changed by uh, Christ working within their hearts, That they will grow in grace and they will be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of a sudden, new subjects in chapter 6 seem to be introduced uh, with little connection to the preceding section. So we might ask ourselves, what on earth is going on here? But, um, beloved, one of the things that I would point out to you is that uh, this isn't a book that was written to strangers, this particular book of Galatians. It's a letter. And it was a letter that was written to congregations as today you would write uh, people seldom write letters any longer. I'm always surprised I, I don't know about you, but I'm always surprised when you get in the mailbox you actually get something that somebody's actually written with their own hand and put into a uh, it's uh, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing, an amazing gift. But In this case, of course, Paul was writing uh, or having an amuensis, that is, a secretary write for him on a papyrus scroll. It was put into the hand of a person and then they took that scroll uh, to its recipients, in this case, uh, the Christians of Galatia, whom he knew and whom he loved, Uh, and he is getting near the end of that particular scroll that he was sending out. So he begins tackling subjects that he knows he needs to address. Also, we need to keep in mind this great fact that the Holy Spirit knew what they needed to hear. And so he uh, brought that to bear when Paul was writing, and what he, the Holy Spirit also knew what every church, including ours today, needed to hear. So we have uh, stuff that doesn't seem to be immediately connected with what went before, but I think you will find that you'll see that these verses are indeed connected with the earlier material. In any event, let's go before the Lord and let's ask him to bless our reading of his word. Please join me. God, our gracious Father, as we turn today in your word to these, O Lord, these words of Paul that you gave to him to send out to the churches in Galatia and to send out to the churches throughout the world and in every time and every place. Lord, we ask that you would help us to listen, that we would remember the importance, not just of discipline, but also of forgiveness, that we would remember not only that it's necessary sometimes to censure people, but it's also necessary to restore them at the right time. We pray, Lord, that you would give us tender hearts, that we would not be a vindictive people, and I pray, Lord, that you would bring that truth home to us now. Oh Lord, open our eyes to see all that you have to tell us. Take away those things that distract us. Help us to put away our phones and, and to set our minds on you and on learning from you. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you know, um, on Wednesdays we've been going through the, I I know uh, not everybody has attended it, but we've been doing it, Uh, we've been going through the Life in Corinth series, and uh, I find that now whenever I'm reading anything by Paul, uh, I always am am going back to his two letters to the Corinthians and the weighty things that he addresses there. Uh, In Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which is something that we'll be going over actually this Wednesday, Paul tackles a thorny subject, and what is that subject? Well, he tackles the fact that there is a man who has been caught in sin, overtaken in sin within that congregation or within those congregations in Corinth, Uh, and a sin that is particularly egregious. He hasn't just been looking at naughty frescoes, perhaps. He has been uh, doing something far, far worse, and he tells them straight up in the beginning of chapter 5 what it is he's writing about. First Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5.1, therefore, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. There is a man in the congregation in Corinth who is actually in the midst of an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, this is awful. Paul says even the Gentiles, and Corinth was, was well known for its debauchery, to Corinthianize was, uh, was a verb within the Roman um, Empire for to, to, to botch somebody, to, to lower them morally. It was kind of their Las Vegas. But he says they don't even do this, and it's happening. And then he says, you have not mourned over this. You have not sought to discipline this individual. Instead, you've rejoiced, saying, grace, grace. This is wonderful that we have forgiveness, even from terrible sins like this. And so he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, going on in that chapter, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put this one out of your assembly. Excommunicate him. Now, we remember the word excommunicate comes from the word communion. They did, believe it or not, even back then, have church membership. They knew who were members and who weren't. They had church membership classes, catechesis classes, where people were instructed and then brought in and then advanced to the table so that they would enjoy the Lord's Supper with the Lord's people. But, he says, such a one clearly is not part of the body of Christ. Therefore, put him out of your assembly. Discipline this person so that he is no longer a stumbling block in your midst. He warns them, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, if you don't discipline this problem within your midst, you're going to get lots more of it, just as adding a little bit of yeast to to a bit of bread... Uh, Back then they didn't have the packets of yeast we do, they used to have a piece of dough from the last uh, batch that they made which they knew would have leaven that is yeast within it, naturally occurring in the air. And so they used to hide that within the new batch of dough and of course it would work its way through. The marvelous little fungi that God created would create the air pockets and make the, the bread puffy and wonderful to eat. And he says, unfortunately, that doesn't just work with yeast and bread. It works with sin as well. If you ignore sin in the assembly, it will continue on. As other people say, well, if he got away with it... I can get away with it, just as children very quickly will move to the lowest common denominator in terms of behavior within their school or within their family. If somebody's getting away with something, be assured that amongst kids you will get more of it. And the same thing happens in the church and amongst adults. It happens in the army. I have been told that. I I don't have firsthand evidence, but uh, I've been told that many a time. So what? Church discipline is necessary, is what Paul is saying. It's actually something that we need, and it's one of the reasons why the church today is in such a mess, because we, by and large, don't discipline any longer. Part of that is because we've adopted a consumer mentality regarding the church. We no longer see it as it is, the body of Christ under his instruction and his rules that were part of the same family in Christ, that we are called to keep one another accountable and so on. Uh, We see it more as a a consumer-driven thing, like a, a theater or a restaurant. Obviously, the restaurant owner does not discipline the members of the restaurant and things like that. There's a very loose association in most churches, and they don't want to drive people away with fears of church discipline, so they don't discipline. And so as a result, unfortunately, all sorts of sinful behavior, the norms of society become the norms of the church, and that's not good. We need church discipline. I know a lot of people have a very negative view towards church discipline. I've got to admit, when I entered into the ministry, I was not eager to (coughs) discipline anybody, and to this day, I still am not. We as a session within this church are very hesitant to pull the trigger when it comes to church discipline. We will wait. We will do everything that we can to get somebody to turn before we go down that particular road. But it is a necessary thing and a good thing. Robert Murray McShane, a a young pastor in Scotland in the 19th century, had the same kind of ideas. He uh, was the pastor of St. Peter's in Dundee, uh, a church that uh, still exists to this day. It's within the uh, the Free Church of Scotland uh, community. But uh, he wrote this. When I first entered upon the work of the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and almost only work was to pray and preach. I saw your souls to be so precious and the time so short that I diverted all my time and care and strength, to labor in word and doctrine. When cases of discipline were brought before me and the elders, I regarded them with something like abhorrence. It was a duty I shrank from, and I may truly say it nearly drove me from the work of the ministry among you altogether." But it pleased God, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches, to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of the souls of those under our care. And that from that hour, a new light broke in upon my mind, and I saw that if preaching be an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. I now feel very deeply persuaded that both are of God, that two keys are committed to us by Christ. The one, the key of doctrine by means of which we unlock the treasures of the Bible. The other, the key of discipline by which we open or shut the way to the sealing ordinances of the faith. Both are Christ's gifts and neither is to be resigned without sin. So in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says you must apply this necessary mark of the church. You've got to do it. You may not want to discipline this man, but it is necessary. So go ahead and do it. Apparently they did. In his second letter, which actually is probably his third letter, there was a letter we don't have in between them. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 2.5. He says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, but, but to be too, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. He says, you have disciplined this person. Now, we're not absolutely certain it was the same person in 1 Corinthians 5 or perhaps another person. They probably had many discipline cases they needed to deal with. But he says, this person who has undergone discipline and who has repented, it is enough. Now it's time to forgive him. Now, the people who were receiving this letter, they, they clearly knew who Paul was talking about. He doesn't need to mention this person by name or what he did he says, now is the time to forgive this, pe- uh, this person. Now is the time to exercise tenderness, lest Satan use this to bring him to despair. He has been disciplined. He has repented. He must be forgiven, and he must be restored. If you don't do that, then you're going to play into Satan's hands. John Calvin, remarking upon that, correctly counseled the church. He said, whenever we fa- fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. Well, let's face it, that's sometimes difficult. When somebody has sinned egregiously, when they have hurt the body of Christ by what they have done, when they have hurt members of the body of Christ. For instance, let me give you just an example that unfortunately occurs again and again within churches. Let us say that a man has an affair. He runs off with another woman and the, the family is, is much love within the church. First, the church feels betrayed by what this man whom they loved and who they sat alongside, they worshipped with, who they were part of the same body together, what he has done. They feel betrayed personally. And then there is their love for their sister in Christ and his children. That too causes a great deal of righteous anger within the body. They are angry at what he has done. They want justice to be done. And so church discipline is applied. Let us say that man repents. He is genuinely sorry. Sometimes the congregation, though, will say, not enough. We know you've repented, but we are going to hesitate to restore you. Or even if they say, we restore you, yet they don't quite exercise that kind of forgiveness. You guys know what it feels like to have somebody say, I forgive you, with their mouth, but their eyes say, I remember everything that you did, and I'm never gonna forget. There is a filing cabinet with every single atrocious thing that you have done. And while I may say, I forgive you, the next time you do something wrong, I am going to go back to the filing cabinet and pull out the folder with your name on it, and we will rehearse exactly what you did this time. And that, brothers and sisters, is empty forgiveness. It isn't true restoration. And somebody who is not being forgiven, even though they have repented, that can produce bitterness. It can produce despair. It can lead somebody who has actually been restored in name to leave the church. And that would be a horrendous thing to happen. That is playing into Satan's hands. Now, Paul had obviously discussed the works of the flesh with the Galatians. And he knew that some people were going to fall prey to the works of the flesh. Some people were going to enter into trespasses. And so he says, when this kind of thing happens, you know what to do. You know that church discipline has to happen. He's already, he's already made that clear in his teaching, but it is going to be necessary also to restore such a one when they repent, when they come back. So he says this, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, a lot of people have said, is this ironic? Is he speaking ironically? Is he saying, you who are spiritual? Because he's been talking to them about the way that they have gone off the path. They have become legalists, and yet they think of themselves as more spiritual than others. Is he speaking ironically? I I agree with the commentators, actually. I don't think he is speaking ironically. I think he is talking to those who are further along in the faith. One of the things that we have to admit, brothers and sisters, is that sanctification, it would be wonderful if everybody in the church was advancing in sanctification at exactly, you know, we're all in one big line, and we're all advancing towards Christ-likeness at the same rate, and that, of course, very quick. That one day we wake up and, you know, we've gotten to, to the next point in sanctification, then the next point in sanctification. There's no backsliding whatsoever. We never slow down in the process. But the fact is, some people grow in grace faster than others. After we were initially converted, uh, my wife and I, I, I could not help but notice my wife was holier than I was. She was further along in, in her spirituality. She knew the Bible more. She was more zealous to pray. She just sounded holier than I did as well. I just I couldn't help but notice that. And that gave me this, I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to, you know, I had to, in order to be, I knew, and I'm being serious here, I knew that in order to be her spiritual leader, I actually had to advance in sanctification past her, or at least try to do so. I don't know if I've really got far beyond, but uh, in any event, far enough that I could say, okay, I'm I'm a few steps here. But in any event, we don't move ahead at the same pace. The fact is some people are less spiritual than others, less sanctified than others. And I think that's what he's getting at. But he says, those of you who are growing in Christ, Restore such a one to the fellowship. Now, the word restore that's being used there is katarizo. Okay, that's the Greek word that's being used. Why is that important? Well, the same word in Greek is used for a dislocated limb. That is then put back in place uh, kids a dislocation occurs when you know the arm comes out of the socket this can uh, this can ha- I actually saw that happen in a football game and it's kind of alarming when you realize holy mackerel that 's not where it's supposed to be and uh, and then I watched uh, two guys on the sideline actually put it back in, which was almost as traumatic as seeing you know the dislocated limb itself, but in any event it uh do they still do that kind of thing, or was that in my generation back in you know the frontier 20th century days where <laughs> they did that kind of thing? Or did, anyway, in any event, they... Um, so, okay, good, thank you, Bobby. They, uh, in any event, uh, when a limb comes out of place, everything is off. The limb, first off, does not work properly. Sometimes does not work at all. It has to be reset. It has to be put back in place. It has to be catarizoed. So the word restore here means to mend, to bring something or someone back into their their former position of wholeness, of of soundness. And it's a word that Paul uses that I I think implies also something very important, namely that they're part of the same body. Look around you, brothers and sisters, everyone you see this morning, and I'm not speaking rhetorically, actually look around you. The interesting thing is every person who you are members of this congregation with, they're part of the same body with you. You are all together, hands and ears and feet and so on, part of the body of Christ. And so when one of the arms, one of the feet, one of the fingers and so on is out of joint, is dislocated, it has to be restored. You have to engage in this process. Now, it may be difficult to do, but we have to do it in order to help the person. We have to restore them gently. We, we need to treat this person as we ourselves would wish to be treated if we were in their place. And as I said, sometimes that can be difficult. Sometimes, as I said, because we are angry at that person because of what they did. Or sometimes because we are offended or disgusted by what they've done. Ew, you can't possibly have done that. Gross, I'm not going to talk to you that kind of thing. I don't want to have anything to do with such a nasty sinner as you. Now, whose spirit are we channeling at that point in time when we say to somebody, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're a gross sinner? Well, uh, that would be the Pharisees. (coughs) And what are we doing when we do that? We are forgetting where we were when Christ found us. And we're also not really judging ourselves as we are. We are saying, oh, I'm, I'm better than that myself. And is that true? It is. isn't, Brothers and sisters, we need to remember the spirit with which Christ restored those who had sinned against him or who had sinned generally. We, uh, there are two places where I, th- I think we see this beautifully brought out. The first place is John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery. We remember that at the end, when after he had shown or he had made it very clear, when he said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the Pharisees were convicted at that point. Uh, we don't know that it's true. R.C. Sproul says he was probably doodling the names of, of uh, women who they were, for instance, having relationships with that they shouldn't in the sand before them. Uh, that's the possibility, but uh, we know he was drawing something in the sand. Regardless, their hearts were convicted and nobody dared to throw the first stone because they knew that they were sinners at heart, even if they didn't admit it with their, with their mouths. They faded away. And so at the end we read, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, the important thing to remember there is that Jesus doesn't say you're not a sinner. The things you did, the adultery you committed, it's not important. He doesn't say that at all. He admits she's a sinner. Go and sin no more. But he restores her. (laughs) Neither do I condemn you. He restores her. And she acknowledged that he was Lord We hope that that meant, of course, that uh, her heart had been changed forever. If he didn't condemn her, it would seem to indicate that that was exactly the case. In John 21, we see an even more uh, lovely restoration and a more full one. You remember that was when the apostles met on the shore of Galilee. Peter had said after his failure, he had denied Christ three times, mostly under the prompting of servant girls. He had said, I don't know him. He'd cursed and done everything. He'd betrayed his master while he was yet in the same courtyard with him. Three times he had denied him, just as Jesus had said. So after the resurrection, Peter was thinking, I'm not worthy. I can't be an apostle anymore. And he said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my my old trade. He'd gone back to the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, of course, had met him there. And so there's that wonderful lakeside reunion where Jesus The resurrected Christ speaks to Peter. And we read in John 21, 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus asked him three times, which three times he had been asked in the courtyard, had he not? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he said, no, I, I don't know this man. I have nothing to do with him. He denied that he loved Christ publicly and now christ asks him do you love me peter's grieved that it happened three times but he obviously knew the reason why it was happening but jesus restores him he tells him feed my sheep and there he's speaking of the flock he puts him back in his place he restores him now jesus could have said you worthless peter maybe maybe i'll let you be a member of my flock again but never again will i allow you to be in charge of anything since you've disgraced yourself publicly so, so awfully, so terribly that it's going to be a story that's told for, uh, until I come back. And he does not. He restores him. He loves him. So Paul reminds them, he says to them, consider yourselves lest ye be tempted. Now, many people get this wrong. They, they think that, um, uh, what, what Paul is saying is, okay, consider yourselves when you're doing this, when you're restoring the person, lest you be tempted, that you'll be caught up in their sin. Now, that, that sometimes happens. A number of pastors have, for instance, shared with me that one of the uh, awful things that sometimes occurs at uh, Narconon meetings, you know, there's al which is for alcoholics, and then there's Narcanon for people who are addicted to narcotics. Uh, they've noted that often, actually, narcotics pushers, people who are selling drugs will go to Narcanon meetings in order to attempt to get new recruits to bring them into uh, or to um, uh, to find people who are already susceptible to using drugs. They befriend them. They say, yeah, I'll be your accountability partner or whatever. I'll help you. You'll help me. And instead, they lead them into even greater sin. So there is that possibility you're trying to help somebody and they lead you into even greater sin. Uh, that isn't though what he's referring to here. He's saying, consider yourself. Don't be wrathful, don't be bitter. It is much too easy to unload upon somebody who has sinned, to be harsh with them, but it accomplishes nothing. Instead, bear their burdens, come alongside them. When they are overtaken in a sin, be the one who bears the, the burden of a guilty conscience with this person and helps them to grow in grace. When you do that, brothers and sisters, you are truly bearing one another's burdens. Everybody in the body needs to put their shoulder underneath one another's burdens. Sometimes that's literally the case when it comes to moving house, like uh, Elder Weber did yesterday, the members of the body. We need to come out without even thinking about it and help them to lift their sofas and bear their furniture burden with them. But that's not quite what's being spoken of here. The burden that's being spoken of here is the burden of sin and being caught up in it. It is the burden of restoration, the burden of standing with your brother. It is far too easy, incidentally, for us to say, oh, I'll pray for you, and then do nothing. If we say to somebody we are going to pray for them, incidentally, we we need to do that. How can you do that, though? Well, one of the things that you need to remember is not to think of yourself too highly, Remember that you are a sinner saved by grace as well. Avoid the the pride that we were speaking about before, the pride of the Pharisees, and indeed the Judaizers who were in the midst of the Galatian congregation here. We see that in Luke chapter 7, for instance, when Jesus is invited to the house of the Pharisee. You remember, and this sinful woman comes in, probably an ex-prostitute. Somebody had been converted. She comes in, she she is weeping, and she... She washes his feet and kisses them. She washes them with her hair, and and she bathes them in her tears. And he asked the question of Simon, the Pharisee who had uh, invited him. He said, uh, Simon, uh, he said, tell me if there are two people, he gives them this uh, example, two people who owed a lot, one owed much, one owed little, and they're both freely forgiven by uh, the person who loaned them the money which will love him more at the end of the day? And he said, of course, the person who was forgiven more. And he points out that this woman was forgiven much. If we are forgiven much, then we love much. And so if we remember that we have been forgiven much, we will love not only Jesus, but we'll love others. We'll remember where we were when God found us. Uh, And please don't fall prey to the... uh, There's always this comparison game that goes on amongst us. Uh, When people are comparing themselves to others, generally speaking, they will not pick the best example that they can find, the holiest person. It's always, I'm going to compare myself to Hitler. And I come off very well as a result. (laughs) Generally speaking, you know, when my wife is is opening up my, my faults and things like that, I'm not going to say, well, I'm as good as Jesus to you, or one of the apostles, one of the leading apostles, because I know it's not true. Well, it's not like he married Hitler, honey. I'm ahead of him and the uh, aren't I? you know. And we can do that when we're dealing with other people. We compare ourselves to them and we say, I'm better than this person. But what do we forget at that point in time? We forget who we truly are and where we were when Jesus found us. Now, let me make an application of this. Uh, and this is obviously that as a church, we need church discipline. As a congregation and as a denomination, we need church discipline, but we also need to be people who are quick to restore. Our form of government has its own section on restoration, and what it says is wonderful. Restoration is the culmination of the element of mercy in the discipline of the church. Therefore, it is to be regarded as the goal of judgment. There is no degree of guilt which automatically precludes the restoration of an offender to full church privileges following satisfactory evidence of repentance and reformation. I sometimes ask the uh, the question, what is the only sin that you can commit that will prevent you from being restored to church fellowship? And I will usually get answers from people, uh, oh, murder. No, you can murder somebody and actually be restored to church fellowship. Adultery. No, you can, you know. Can commit adult. We're not encouraging these sins, incidentally, from the whole <laughs> Don't worry, we're all restoring you. like, oh, you know. You no, know, this is not a license to sin. But nonetheless, if somebody commits one of these even grievous sins, and then they repent, they can be restored. What is the only sin, therefore, and there is one, that prevents us from restoring you to fellowship? The answer is, and it's a big word, contumacy. What is contumacy? Contumacy is a stubborn unwillingness to repent. I sin. You could sin a little sin, or what the world calls a little sin. Every sin uh, brings with it death. But you could be a gossip and refuse to repent, and then we can't restore you to fellowship. So what's most necessary amongst those people who have sinned is repentance. And then what's most necessary following that is restoration, restoration gently and in grace. Now, this is not always easy. Sometimes we're going to be asked to restore, to truly restore somebody who has sinned against us. And we find it difficult. I'm going to share with you. I'm going to close with a story. Um, I've, I think the last time I shared it was in 2019, so that's long enough ago that I can reuse it. Uh, the, we have people, but it's a, it's a, a lesson that always I, I bring to mind when I'm thinking about this subject. And it occurred in the life of Corey Ten Boom. Now, you remember Corrie, uh was a Dutch woman, Her family had hidden Jews during the Holocaust. They were finally betrayed by another uh, Dutchman. And they were sent to, uh, she and her sister were sent to Ravensbrück where her dear uh, sister wasted away doing slave labor and finally died. She was released by a clerical error uh, and survived the Holocaust. We know it wasn't a clerical error. The Lord was obviously uh, intimately involved in it. But after that, she went about Europe essentially preaching the gospel, letting people know that repentance uh, was possible, restoration. She particularly dealt with those who had been horribly wounded by the Nazis. And she kept encouraging them, you've got to forgive the German people. You've got to forgive the German people. They have got to be restored. That was hard for a lot of people who'd suffered terribly during occupation in particular. But then it came home to her one day. I'm going to read that story. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Poland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins, had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me... It seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that, and I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Brothers and sisters, we can forgive because Christ has forgiven us so much more. Will we, though? Well, in moments Where we're wondering about that, we need to go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Christ, you have forgiven us sins that could never be forgiven otherwise. We live in such an unforgiving age, such an age of hatred and tearing apart. We pray, Lord, that you would not let us have the same spirit. Help us to forgive those who have genuinely repented. Help us to restore those who are out of place. Remind us that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been overtaken by sins. Remind us of our need to bear their burdens. Help us to be a loving church, a restoring church, a gracious church. Help us to be like Jesus. Lord, your son, even as he was being nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Help us to have that same loving, forgiving spirit. And help us to be a people who are constantly pointing a lost and dying world to the only one who can